In today's episode, Eric and Allie, the co-founders of Courageous Wellness, share their individual experiences with Buddhism. Whether you're into exploring various types of spirituality for your own well-being, or just looking to deepen your meditation practice, give today's show a listen. Now, who are Erica and Allie? Well, they're both certified integrative nutrition health coaches with advanced training in gut health and hormone health. They produce and co-host the Courageous Wellness Podcast, a platform to interview diverse people about their personal journeys across all aspects of health and wellness, with a commitment to destigmatize conversations in the wellness space. The podcast itself has over 220 episodes and counting, and Ali and Erica have interviewed guests, including folks from Goop, Melissa and Doug Toys, GT's Living Foods, Weelicious, Wanda, and Chopra Global. In addition to that, Erica and Ali also offer nutrition coaching over at Courageous Wellness. Without further ado, let's get into today's episode. Welcome to Holistic Wellness, a podcast exploring the science and metaphysics of health and wellness. I'm your host, Brandy Searcy, founder and formulator at Rain Organica, where you'll find holistic skincare in one simple routine. Today, Allie and Erica, both of Courageous Wellness, join me for uh, the conversation. Thank you both so much for being here. Well, thank you for having us. We're we're excited to be here, and um, it's nice to see you again since we were together last time on our show. Yes, and I'm looking forward to the conversation today on, well, really, all the things, I think. Um, first off, could you just share what Courageous Wellness is all about and uh, not only your podcast, but of course, the work that you do beyond that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Erica, I guess I'll get started and she can chime in. So uh, yeah, we did start as actually we started as a podcast, believe it or not. Um, Erica and I were friends through our Buddhist community. That's how we met. We both are practicing Buddhists and um, had known each other for quite a while, but I think our lives, you know, evolved and we um, actually didn't become kind of closer friends until many years into knowing each other and, um, discovered through actually social media when I was living in Japan, that we were reading the same book on nutrition. And when I came home from Japan, we discovered we both had interest in sort of like a holistic, um, approach to our own wellness journeys and that we both had these journeys as well. I had had a, an experience with cancer. Um, Erica had a big sort of self-love journey, but also aspects of that, um, where she had to deal with body dysmorphia and all different changes that happened to her own body in the context of it, um, which I'd let her explain, but, um, we realized that we had these wellness and health health stories really. And that, um, even though we had known each other for years, we didn't really, hadn't really shared them with each other. And so upon sharing them with each other, we realized, well, if we have stories to share, so many other people do too. And that was the little in, 
you know, the little kind of beginning incarnation of this concept for courageous wellness. And we decided that even though neither one of us had had experience with podcasting, we both had um, backgrounds in entertainment and different capacities. And we decided this would be the perfect storytelling platform to interview people and hear about their courageous journeys, because it takes a lot of courage to talk about, um, the things that we've been through, whether they're physical health, emotional, spiritual, mental health. There's so many components to it when you look at it in a holistic way. And that was really the, um, the start of courageous wellness. And then maybe Erica, do you want to share about what it's really evolved into and the mission now? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much. Yeah. So from there, gosh, so we've now released, um, like over 150 episodes with such a diverse group of people. And I think our interests really led us back to school and we both became certified integrative nutrition health coaches and Ali went on to get advanced training in hormone health. And I went on to get advanced training in gut health. I'm very passionate about the gut. Um, and so we've, gone into individual coaching, corporate coaching, group coaching. We have a Patreon um, that's only $8.99 a month that offers accessible coaching. And that became really apparent, you know, just from my childhood and just the more we became involved in the wellness um, space, we realized, you know, wellness and health should really be like a basic human right. And it's often so inaccessible and, um, you know, especially food, like food is so inaccessible to so many people. And I think there's sometimes a disconnect with that in the wellness space, but, um, yeah, so we went back to school, we started our coaching community and yeah, we really work to, help people feel great in their skin and their bodies and, and hopefully offer educational options for people to be able to be their own health advocates as well. So, yeah. Okay. I love your journey and I love what, well, I, of course that was just a, a brief snippet of your journey. Um, however, circling back to your mission and your overall mission and really bringing because one of the things that you offer is um, payment via sliding scale for people who really can't afford nutritionists. So could you could you talk about how um, really how you brought that or decided to bring that into your business model? Yeah, um, that's a good question. So we part of what we discovered, as Erica mentioned, is that like you know in the, the wellness world can be very commodified, just like everything else. It can be very like, um, kind of sort of like consumer oriented, like buy this, you'll feel this way or buy this and change your life, you know, and it doesn't, it's sort of like all the kind of negative aspects of diet culture that historically have existed in like a different packaged, packaged differently. And, um, and then in a lot of ways, quite whitewashed as well. Um, so we recognized that pretty quickly as we emerged ourselves in this community, especially in the Los Angeles community. Um, and we decided that if we we're going to go into the space, which we do feel passionate about, we do want people to feel their best. And, and yeah, sometimes that takes some resources and some, um, sort of accountability. Unfortunately, we don't necessarily have systems that fully support us in this country to do that. We wanted to also be a part of, we didn't want to necessarily like unconsciously be a part of the problem and create 
um, more inaccessibility. So we thought that that was just a component of what we could offer because when you, when you offer that out there, I think people generally won't take advantage of that. You know, we value our skills and our time, but we also value the fact that like, if people are committed to wanting to make a change for their health and they're able to afford the full rate, they will pay for that. And if they're not, they're going to be honest about that. And we're happy to, um, accommodate that, uh, you know, and I, I don't think, I don't think that that's something that's taken advantage of. I think it's, um, I think it's actually like a wonderful offering. Cause we don't want to, we don't want to be a barrier to people making causes for their own health. And it just feels like one of the, one of the aspects of health and wellness is that sometimes it feels so unattainable and it feels like so often you really, you don't know where to turn um, because there's so much conflicting information. You can go to two different doctors and get two different, one saying one thing and one saying the other, and you can go to the internet and find the same thing. You, you spend 10 minutes on Google and I've thought I was dying before. Um, so, so with that, um, I think where I, where I'm trying to go with this is that already in some respects, wellness feels almost like this unattainable lofty goal. And especially when you couple that into the fact that people so often think it costs a lot of money to attain wellness. Um, so I mean, I love that you're, well, first of all, I think your podcast mission supports it because it's completely free and you, you definitely share people's health journeys through that. And so it gives other people hope as well through that. And then plus incorporating this into your mission as well. And in addition, um, as Erica mentioned, I know you were both very passionate about food security. Yes. So could you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, I think too, you know, something I've been thinking a lot about too, is like, right. There's so many barriers to entry. It can feel like in wellness, right? Like yeah. it's expensive or it's so white or it's this, that, and the other. And I think too, there's so much like judgment and shame in it as well. Like people find their group, right. That they like put themselves into a box in. And then if you feel like you can't fit into that box or you want to leave that box comes some judgment and shame. And we're all about, like, I think that's again, like with the podcast, we really want to destigmatize like all conversations and wellness so that again, people can just advocate for their own health. And I think food, when it comes to food, I think there's so much judgment and shame, right? Because yes, like Ali and I are integrative nutrition health coaches. We understand the science and we understand nutrition and we understand and advocate for how important fueling ourselves is and fueling ourselves, hopefully most of the time with real whole foods. However, and this is where food access comes in is we also understand that that is not possible for every single person for a variety of reasons. Right. Um, and I can, we can list some of them, you know, it could be that people live in food deserts and literally do not have access to fresh food. It could be that people do not have the financial, um, ability to, um, maybe buy fresh food. And, and even if they do, cause I just want to caveat that because I know some people listening might be like, well, you can, or food stamps do cover certain things. And it's true, right? Like 
maybe you can quote afford to go to the dollar store and get fresh vegetables that you know, or, or use your food stamps at the farmer's market. But typically when people are in a financial situation where they would have to use their food stamps to go to farmer's market or, you know, go to the dollar store and buy vegetables, they're not living in a space where that's their number one priority, right? A lot of the times they're working two or three jobs or they have a children that they need to feed and feeding your kids. Any food is more important than not feeding your kids. Right. So, um, I, I think it's like, it's so nuanced, right. More so than just like making the time or going to the dollar store or whatever it may be. And I think that's where the judgment comes in because people have so much, um, like, well, this is how I would do it. But I think we just have to clear all of that. And, um, and I think the reality too, is people just don't know, like a lot of people really do not know in this country that, you know, like it might sound crazy, but like, they don't know that like eating a few Cheetos here and there is so detrimental to your health, or they think buying whole wheat bread is a really healthy, good choice, but they don't know that that whole wheat bread is packed with sugar or even high fructose corn syrup at times. Right. So there's so many issues with food access and it's such a nuanced conversation. So, and I don't think people are talking about it. And just as a side note, you know, from my own childhood, I think I became really passionate about this in adulthood because, you know, as Ali said, like we live in Los Angeles, like the land of air one and, um, $20 smoothies at air one, which we both partake in and, and enjoy. Um, but with that said, you know, my childhood, I grew up in, you know, Malibu, California, which is so beautiful. And for the first, um, probably 10 years of my life, I lived like a very healthy, beautiful existence with organic fresh foods. And if anybody listening is local, um, like PC greens was like the original air one and Mrs. Gooch's like, that was my whole childhood. And then at 10, my parents fell on really hard times and my mom started working two jobs and they had no money. And I was living in Malibu, California, and I was on free lunch program at school free lunch program at school. I don't know if it's changed. I hope it's changed, but at 11, it was terrible, right? It's like little, I think we all remember that, like the little pizzas. And when you're 11, you're not like, I'm going to choose salad bar. You get your, your little like square pizza and whatever else is being served to you. And then after school, my mother was working two jobs and she would literally use her lunch break to pick my brother and I up from school and then go back to work. And so we were eating dollar menu fast food because that's what she could afford. And beyond just what she could afford, that's what she had time for. Like that's what she had time for. And, you know, my parents fortunately came out of that when I was about like 14, 15, but those that like those years were set. Right. So it's like that experience was set for me. And I've been at so many events or I went to one in particular that I can remember And I had this, this woman who was a wellness influencer who I won't call out. She was like, I just, I don't know how anyone could feed their children fast food. And I was just like, wow, like that is such an out of touch statement as you sit here with, you know, all of the privileges that you have. And I think the reality is just some people don't know any better and I don't shame them for that either. I just think we need to get out of our box of like, how could anyone feed their kids fast food? How could anyone not eat organic or, and be like, how do we meet people where they're at 
and bring forth education and options and get rid of shame. Because when people feel judged and shame, they're just going to eat more fast food and they're going to eat more Cheetos or they're going to not work to educate themselves. Right. So I don't know. I kind of went on a ramble, but Ali, I'm sure you have so much to add and I, I, you know, but I just, yeah. So I think it's just, it's a very nuanced conversation and I think it's happening more and more. I think people are becoming more aware of it, but, um, yeah, it's definitely something we're really passionate about. Yeah, no, I, I think Erica kind of did a good overview of it. The only thing I would add into is that like the more we've become kind of entrenched in this world is that I think there's oftentimes like a lot of individual, like emphasis on the individual. I think this is a cultural thing across fields and, you know, across our entire culture, but it, it doesn't account for, I feel like in the history of nutrition too, it's always about like personal failure or personal success or whatever that even means, but like, it doesn't account for things like big food or, um, food products that are manufactured to hit, uh, the bliss point in the brain where things it's not, you know, it's not about like making good choices. Even having good choices is one thing like to make as Erica was saying, some people just don't have the choices, but then even in the context of like, if you do have accessibility and can afford certain, you know, maybe more healthful fueling options, we, we don't always account for the fact that like, we're sometimes biologically wired like with these food products to have these incredibly intense chemical responses that are actually manufactured to produce those responses in the brain. And so it doesn't account for that where it's like, Oh no, no, no. You're, this is, this is created for you to have like an addictive response to it. So it, it takes, and, but yet we put so much like pressure on the individual when it's like, there are systems that set it up where, you know, entire populations of folks are, are continuing to go back to these, um, food products basically. And there's nothing like, again, taking the shame out of that because it's like, that's not your fault. Like, you know, it's like your brain is doing what it's meant to do. And your body's response to it is like exactly what it was supposed you know, what it was made to do. So just to understand food in a different way, I think is part of our mission to empower people to understand what can happen in their body when certain foods are put in it versus others. Um, it's just to, to feel empowered around it. Yeah. Thank you both for sharing your view of this. And, um, I agree. I mean, I, I'm in agreement here with you both. What, so I think one more piece to the, to this as well is Erica, as you were saying, people are often working two or three jobs when they're making these poor food choices. And, Part of that because they're living such a stressful lifestyle anyways because they're trying to make ends meet um then to your point Allie, it really is all these food choices really are feeding into that to help them get over that stress response because i mean many of these foods are treating the the, the anxiety that they're experiencing yeah mm-hmm. ab- absolutely and i think too it's um exactly what you said. It's, it's such a, it's such a system that feeds each other. Right. And, and I think, you know, when you look at like 
to like historically, like the way humans are supposed to live. Right. I've been really interested. I, I swear I'm getting all witchy as like, I get older. I swear the pandemic I'm into like the moon and everything, but I've actually been looking right recently studying and, and just reading about the way I think like humans are supposed to exist, right? Like we're not supposed to be on screens all day long, even like our concept, right. Of like gyms, like, right. Like gyms didn't exist, right. Like we would just move our bodies and be in the sunlight and be working right outside. And, you know, there's a lot of benefits to the way our culture lives. We're here over zoom in different locations, having this conversation, but I think something we've lost, right. Is like this, this, kind of the importance of community and community support. And we almost all live on little islands, right? Like, oh, well, this is my island of like air one and green juice and yoga. And like, that's my island. And somebody else's island is like a food desert and dollar menu. And, and we're just, we're not living in community in the same way. And so I think too, at that time, like if my mom and she did, we had an incredible spiritual community that I think like, I don't think I'd be here without. And, um, but we didn't have, you know, um, like that type of family environment or community environment where like, you know, people were dropping off food so that her kids could eat. It happened occasionally, right? Like I have distinct memories of like, um, different groups, like dropping my mom off groceries and different things. But I think often to that time, right. Where someone's like, well, maybe your mom should have food prepped on Sundays. You guys had nutritious food, right. Or I'm not, nobody has ever said that, but just like these things people can say to situations. And, and I'm like, but wouldn't it have been nice if we lived in a culture or society that, um, encouraged, right. That kind of like community living of like, I'm going to bring, I'm going to help you feed your children or, and I know even this is really different, but I know like, even, um, this might be gross to some people, but women used to share breast milk, like in community, like if a mother wasn't making enough breast milk, another mother would like share her breast milk with the baby to like feed and like, that's the type of community humans grew and flourished and lived in. And I don't know. I just think about that a lot. Like what if our, like, again, like we live in such an individualistic culture, but I think we'd all thrive so much just living in more community and care. But I don't know. I just think about that a lot. That might be a tangent, but just something that I think about. (laughs) Yeah. And I totally agree with you. I mean, I was raised with a nuclear family. And it, I mean, it really took, uh, it took, it takes a village to raise a kid as they all say, I had both sets of grandparents, aunts, uncles, the whole family, the larger family um, thing acting. And yes, I also realized how important it is for different uh, spiritual groups to help, really to help raise, well, just to help support one another in times like this. And this might be a really great time to transition and talk about uh, both of your spiritual practice. Yeah. So, um, I think as I alluded to in the beginning, it's actually how Erica and I met through, um, Buddhism. She was raised in the practice. We practice Nichiren Buddhism with a lay, uh, a lay organization. So there are no temples or priests. It's basically a peace culture and education organization called the SGI USA, but it's an international organization in all over the world. Um, so yeah, everybody, are, you know, any sort of leadership is voluntary and it's, it's really a community, um, that is based on this type of, uh, 
um, Buddhism that came through Japan um, from a 13th century monk named Nichiren Daishonin. But um, the current incarnation is a lay Buddhist organization that we're a part of. And I came to it. I was introduced to it through a colleague of mine um, about seven years ago. And Erica grew up in the practice. Her parents started practicing um, when they were young adults. And um, she actually, I, you know, I was invited to go to a meeting and I didn't really know what I was going to, but um, she was actually at the first meeting that I ever showed up at. And um, yeah, and who knew, you know, seven years later, we would be business partners and, and really wonderful friends and work wives. So, um, so that, you know, it's interesting because we, two, we have two different perspectives because I came to this, like I chose this practice and, and I think Erica really chose this practice as well, because just because you're raised in something doesn't mean you're going to choose it for your, for your life. But um, the thing I, I just love so much about it is it's about really like creating happiness um, through one individual at a time with the ultimate goal of creating a happier world and a more peaceful world. And um, there's a lot of self-transformation that can happen. It's really about using, um, it's not it's not the type of Buddhism that is about detaching from, you know, our earthly, uh, desires. Um, it's about using the sufferings and the earthly desires to actually, um, transform them. And to, to, we often have this saying like turning, um, poison into medicine. And so it's about using the, the struggles and the adversities that we might face to, um, really create joy out of it on the other side. And, the practice itself is that we chant every day. We chant the words Namyo Horenge Kyo morning and night um, for as little or as much time as you want to. We have individual practices in our homes. And then we also have this greater community. Um, so Erica, do you want to jump in and share a little bit more about, about our yeah, the community? Yeah, for yeah. sure. And, and like I said, like I, I'm so grateful. I think that's why I've, I've always chosen it. And you're right. Like I know so many kids I grew up with in Buddhism and some of them practice, some of them don't. But for me, I think what my parents experienced when I was younger and having that community, I do not think I'd be here today without it. Um, it was such an incredible practice to grow up in. Um, and of course we all have karma. So it's like, I've, you know, there was still stuff I needed to work through, but to be given a tool at such a young age, like Ali said, where it's really about like through this chant, we like call forth our Buddhahood and like our greatest, um, potential and, you know, um, enlightenment exists as we are, right. It's not like a destination that we hit and then it's like over and we're godlike. It's a, it's a, something we constantly hit and come back to earth. Right. Um, but yes. So, so yeah, it was an incredible organization and community to grow up in. And I know organization can get such like a dirty word. Like people are not about organization, but again, as Ali said, I think because this is a lay organization, there are no priests, there are no temples, there's no intermediary between you 
and your enlightenment. Um, the community, the organization just really supports, you know, through um, women's gatherings, they have men's gatherings too. There's co-ed gatherings, but I love specifically like women's gatherings and um, study meetings and people sharing experiences. And they now have a great podcast themselves called Buddhability. Um, and I think they have two, Buddhability and Buddha Solutions for Life's Problems, which is really great. Um, it's just a great resource and it's really free, but yeah, the chanting, it's amazing. It's a great, it's a great community and we love it so much. Yeah. And it's how we met. I'm so grateful that we got to meet at that meeting seven years ago. So, so you meet cool people through <laughs> community. So I'd like to unpack this just a little bit more. So you say that you're I guess you could call it your daily ritual would be to chant in the morning and the evening. Yes. Is um is there any sort of breath work also associated with it or is it just the chanting? So it's just the chanting, but I have to say it's a very physical practice because you're using your you're sitting there with your eyes open. It's a very active practice. Um and we have something called the Gohansen, which are these scrolls um, that we use as a focal point. And it's not an object of worship. In fact, it just is um, basically a representation of our life. We look at it like a mirror so that when we sit down, we're here to face our life and to bring that potential or Buddhahood that Erica was talking about out while we chant. Um and so we have that in our homes and we sit and we look at it. And the interesting thing is, and I, I love to look at it from this perspective too, because it's so physical, we're using our voice. Um, using the voice is actually one of the best ways to activate the vagus nerve, which we know um, helps get us into the, our parasympathetic nervous system. So which is our rest and digest uh, function for those who might not know versus our sympathetic response, which is our fight or flight. And oftentimes the state we find ourselves in, in 2022 chronically. Right. So, um, it really helps like from a physiological standpoint, in addition to the spiritual standpoint, it's a very, um, I feel like inclusive practice, both of the body and the mind and the soul or whatever, you know, the spiritual part of you as well. So, um, that's, what's really cool about chanting every day. And it absolutely activates the breath too, because if you're, you know, I did about 50 minutes this morning and, um, it's kind of like a workout <laughs> when you do it for that long. No, it totally is. And if anyone wants to hear, they have an app, the SGI USA, it's all free. And there's a YouTube and you can, um, hear that, like for new people who want to do the chant, like, um, they, they move pretty fast when you start, you go like slow. Cause you're learning the words and the rhythm, but it's a quick, it's like a, it's a quick chant, you know? So, um, it's active for sure. You're definitely activating breath, just not in a conscious way. And I actually like that about the chanting because when you're chanting, you can think about anything you want. So you can chant about like your hopes and dreams. You can chant about your anxiety. You can chant about anything you want, but, um, you know, again, like because the, the chant, so what we chant is Nam Myoho Renge Kyo and, um, Myoho Renge Kyo is the title of the Lotus Sutra, which is the, um, Sutra of Shakyamuni Buddha that we practice. So it's also Mahayana Buddhism and, um, Myoho Renge Kyo is the title of the Lotus Sutra and Nam means devotion to, and there's other, we can unpack like what each 
phrase means, but, but it's basically like the name of like the ultimate enlightenment that lives inside of you. So when we're saying this word, we're like piercing through what they call the ninth consciousness. And that's like, if, um, there's like nine consciousness, but how it's been described to me is like seven is like, right. Seven is our ego. Like what we see in like the human realm, eight is our karma and nine is Buddhahood. So when we chant, we may be thinking about like, oh, I want to have a great podcast recording today, or I want to find true love or whatever it may be, but we're actually piercing because we're calling the name of our Buddhahood, this title of this sutra, which is encompasses so much. Um, we're literally piercing the ninth consciousness. So we don't have to be aware, right. Of like, this like deep meditation or like, we just can do it and it works. And the practice is based so much on actual proof, which I also like, like if you come to a meeting, they're like, we'll test it, chant for something, see if it works for you, see if you feel better. And I love that about that too. And, um, yeah. And I was just going to say one more thing, but it might have escaped me about, um, piercing the ninth consciousness, chanting Buddhahood eyes open. If it comes to me, I'll say it, but I lost it. But I was like, there was one more thing I was going to say, but anyway, Okay. And so this state of Buddhahood, uh, forgive my naivety here. And um, is it really the collective consciousness? So this idea of Buddhahood or enlightenment or, or, um, even you want to call it just like absolute happiness, like in just sort of like lay people's terms, whatever that might be. Um, this idea that we all already possess it. It already exists within us. So yes, every single human being has the potential for Buddhahood within them. I don't know that every single human being is always calling that out for sure. Um, but this idea that there's this like inherent, uh, dignity to life, in and of itself. And that's worthy of our own respect for ourselves and our life and the respect and dignity for, to see it that in others as well. So you said, is it a collective consciousness? It can be as far as, um, individuals bringing that out and then working for like, even in the context of community, working for a greater peace and good in the world. And there's this idea of cause and effect. This is the Buddhism of cause and effect. So the idea of making conscious causes through our actions in the world, it's a very practical form of Buddhism. Um, and then this idea of Buddhahood is not a final destination or enlightenment even is not a final destination. Similarly to how we were talking about wellness before, it's not like a place you attain and then stay. It's a place you can visit. It's a place you can call out within yourself at any time, even in the depths of hell, like there's, or suffering, there are 10 worlds in Buddhahood that we all can kind of like go in and out of. Um, but Buddhahood exists within all of the world. So even if you're in the depths of suffering, the idea is by chanting um, and calling out your Buddhahood, you can still experience that or experience this kind of enlightenment and really understand your true nature and be able to understand the dignity and true nature of others too at the same time. I hope that yeah. makes sense. Does that make sense? It makes so much I, for me. I mean, I think I would just add to with like the collective. I think what Ali already mentioned as well, like when the whole purpose too of the organization is um, human revolution, right? So if we all do our human revolution, if we all, we all have karma we were born into and karma is not a negative thing. It's like 
we were born with mission and that comes with karma. So it's like, you would not have been born if you didn't have a mission and your karma or your suffering is, is part of, of what you can transform and help other people. But this concept of like, if everyone is able to do their human revolution, um, and bring forth this like world of Buddhahood or absolute happiness, right? I think absolute happiness is another word for Buddhahood, then that would raise the collective consciousness, right? It's world peace through the happiness of each individual person. And so, and I remembered what I was going to say, which is the Lotus Sutra is the only sutra that talked about the enlightenment of women, right? So women um, are Nietzsche and Buddhism, right? Like it, it alluded, the Lotus Sutra literally said every single person could attain enlightenment um, in the form they were at. Evil people, right? Um, uh, women, right? Because women that age were also, you know, thousands of years ago. So I've always loved that, that women have always been able to attain Buddhahood in, um, whereas other forms of Buddhism really taught that you would have to be reborn as a man to be able to achieve enlightenment. So just think that's cool. <laughs> yeah, that is very cool. Okay, so turning the tables on your three questions that you always end with, I won't ask all three, but to begin with, of course, what are some of your favorite resources? Yeah, there's so many good ones. Um, I can share, whew, I can share a couple of mine um, and then Erica, you want to share a couple of years? So resources. So that can be like book, podcast, whatever it might be. Um, one of my favorite podcasts is called The Doctor's Pharmacy. It starts with an F um, and it's from Dr. Mark Hyman. And I always just, I love his guests. I find a lot of the topics really fascinating. Overall, I really like his approach to um, health and being kind of a detective as far as like cutting edge research goes. Um, so that's one of my favorites. I'm trying to think of a book. Oh, we've had some really good ones recently. Um, and authors on the podcast, Unwell Women uh, by Eleanor Cleghorn, who's, um, she's a British PhD. And it's about um, the history basically of women's health. And it's, I think this subline is um, mythology, what is it? Mythology and something it's basically like, hold on, I'm going to, I'm going to find it, but it's called unwell women. And it's basically like unlocking like the myths around the history of female health over the course of like centuries. So really, really fascinating. Um, yeah. What else? The other one I'm, I'm actually still reading is called inflamed. Um, and it talks about like how systemic issues actually affect, um, our physical health. It's really, really fascinating. So from everything from like ecological things, climate change and systemic racism, how they can affect, um, the health of, of human bodies. Yeah. I would say for mine too, um, I loved the book, the, um, microbiome diet. It's, um, I know it's called, it has diet in the title, but I've learned like books need to market. So a lot of times they'll have that. Um, it, it does have like a quote diet that you can follow at the end, but I think it's one of the most informative books on gut health and the microbiome health. And, um, I found it so fascinating and it opened my world of my obsession with gut health. So the microbiome diet, I would definitely, um, highly recommend. And then if anybody does struggle with like emotional eating, um, women, food and God by Janine Roth is a really impactful book as well. And, um, 
you know, the way she also talks about God is very spiritual. So again, like Buddhist girl here loved the book. Um, but so if, if that phrase, or if like that higher power turns you off, I still really recommend that read. And then, um, you can heal your life by Louise Hay, I find to be pretty incredible. And what I love too about You Can Heal Your Life by Louise Hay is it's so similar. It's actually really intense. So like be ready for it, but it's really good. But I found it's like, it's just, it's, it's a lot of what we practice in Buddhism with different language, right? Like I feel like more accessible, like, like Western language, um, and, and minus a tool. So I was really grateful to have a tool because I have a hard time. I know a lot of people can do it, but like just positive thinking is, is not easy for me. So I really took a lot of, you can heal your life and then applied it to my chanting. And then, yeah, like, I think I already mentioned it, but our organization has incredible podcasts as well that I gained so much from and it's free. So, um, boot ability is, and they have an Instagram and it's so great. Um, yeah. And that's a great place to start. If anything resonated about the chanting too. And there's meetings all over the country. It's all virtual now too, because of the pandemic, which is great. <laughs> all right. Thank you for sharing that. Now the other question, because, uh, we hear on your podcast, what courageous wellness means to others. I don't know if you've shared what it means to you. Well, we get so many amazing answers. Um, and some of them I really resonate with, I think courageous wellness to me beyond the, beyond the community name, what like actually practicing courageous wellness means is to, um, to strive to live and, um, I say live authentically, but live in a way that authentically supports my wellness. And that's not just my physical being. That's also my mental health, my emotional health, my relationships, my partnerships. And, um, sometimes doing things in like authentic ways to you, what's authentic to you is difficult. And even in the midst of the adversity that might come along with that, to have the courage to have the, um, the guts, the confidence, whatever that might be, sometimes not confidence, but the ability to take action, um, from that place. So I think that's what it means to me. Yeah. I echo what Ali said. I think really living an authentic life. And, um, I think even, even if you're scared, right, like being afraid and doing it anyway, I think that takes so much courage and yeah, just moving one foot forward at a time. But yeah, I think definitely living, living authentically for sure. And true to yourself, whatever that may mean, it's different for every person. Well, Allie and Erica, thank you so much for being here today. Is, are there any other uh, notes you would like to leave with before we wrap up or as we wrap up, I guess? Well, we just want to thank you for having us. It's been an absolute pleasure and um, it's fun to share, you know, with your audience about, about courageous wellness and about and getting to talk about our Buddhist practice. That was also fun for us. I know we enjoy when we get to do that. So, um, yeah, I would just say if anyone wants to get in touch, whether it's for coaching or whether it's just to listen to the podcast or to follow us, uh, you know, follow along on Instagram, um, reach out, send us a message. We always like to interact with people and have conversations. So, um, 
you can do that. We're at Courageous Wellness and our website is courageouswellness.net. Um, so you can find all of our offerings and, and resources there as well. And I think that's it. All right. Well, thank you so much for being here. Thank you again. Next time on the podcast, we're continuing the conversation around urinary tract infections and what happens when they are undiagnosed or misdiagnosed. And this is part two of a series that I started last time on my experience when I quit hormonal birth control. I highly encourage you to listen, whether you suffer from UTIs, whether you have been diagnosed with interstitial cystitis, or whether you have insulin resistance. As always, thank you so much for being here. Please share this podcast with anyone you know who might be interested in the content that's shared here. And if you would take a quick second and go ahead and rate this podcast on your favorite listening app. Until next time. Bye.